You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do the people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Hello and welcome to The Credit Edge, a weekly markets podcast. My name is James Crombie. I'm a senior editor at Bloomberg. This week, we're very pleased to have on the show Steve Church and Amelia Pollard, who cover bankruptcy at Bloomberg News, based in Delaware and New York, respectively. How are you both doing today? Fantastic. Thanks for having us, James. Thank you for joining us. We're also delighted to welcome back on The Credit Edge, Spencer Cutter, a credit analyst with Bloomberg Intelligence in Seattle. There's a big story brewing in the oil sector, and we'll be looking at that with Spencer just a little bit later in the show, so do stay with us. But first, Steve Church with Bloomberg News. You've been covering the bankruptcy courts for years, and we've had the pleasure of working together for a lot of that time. As you've reported, a prominent bankruptcy judge is stepping down after revelations that he dated and lived with a top Houston bankruptcy lawyer since 2017. I'm not going to get into that scandal or why it took six years for anyone to figure that out. I mean, Houston's not a big town. People must talk to each other, especially in a small world like bankruptcy. But it really is amazing to me that no one saw that coming. But more interesting to the credit markets, who is Judge Jones and why is it such a big deal that he's leaving the court? I think the big deal is Jones was known as a judge who could work fast, was willing to make hard decisions um, quickly without spending months uh, of of expensive litigation or expensive briefings. He always let uh, companies and creditors know upfront what he was thinking. He did that deliberately because he thought it would speed up the process and save money in the long run. But most importantly, I think um, corporations in distress began to look at Texas as a place to return to, to bring their bankruptcy bankruptcy cases there because Jones and another judge, Judge Isger, that he knows very well, the two of them have worked together for years, because they made such a powerful team and because they were so willing to to make a lot of um, adjustments to how the process worked, 
not on the legal rulings so much, but definitely to make it easier to get into the court, easier to file cases. And of course, they both have expertise in oil cases, big oil cases. Corporations got comfortable coming to Houston. And so a lot of the biggest law firms brought their cases there because of Judge Jones primarily and Judge Isger. And one of your sources described it as a nightmare for the bankruptcy bench. You've been covering this a long time, Steve, though. So how much of a surprise was it to you? And how well did you know the judge? Um, I've been listening to the judge for many, many years. Uh, He is one of the rare judges who will actually talk to the press on background. Um, And occasionally he would uh, communicate on the record when he was talking about certain issues that were not directly involved in a case. So he was approachable. So I knew him fairly, not, I wouldn't say very well, but well enough to be able to call him up and ask him uh, uh, what was going on with the process of bankruptcies in general. Not about specific cases, he simply wouldn't comment on that. And as for the surprise, I was, I was very surprised. I was shocked, actually. And the lawyers that I've talked to who are not Houston lawyers, some of the big bankruptcy attorneys that have been around for many years, they had no idea. They... They say they did not know what was happening. So, Amelia, tell us about some of his cases. You know, what was he actually involved with and, you know, why was he so important for bankruptcy? Yeah, so when I started covering bankruptcy, which was only in January, some of the biggest cases that were coming before him were ones with so-called liability management deals, which is basically a jargony word for these contentious debt deals that get done between creditors and they're often known for spurring Um, you know, creditor on creditor violence or fights. And um, so he became very important recently with those types of deals and companies that had done those transactions um, because he was willing to kind of go above and beyond other courts and making quick decisions, sweeping decisions um, when other courts, you know, district courts or the like um, would take months and months to make make a, a call or a ruling. Um, and so one case we watched with this um, play out with was the mattress maker, Serta Simmons, had an infamous debt deal that was highly contentious in 2020. Um, it filed for bankruptcy in January before Judge Jones. And within a matter of months, he was willing to make um, you know a sweeping opinion that basically blessed the deal um, and said that it was done in good faith and was an open market purchase to um, you know, components that were highly litigated prior um, in other venues. So, um, you know, we heard from sources far before Judge Jones resigned that um, companies that had similarly contested deals under their belts were going to make sure that they had, you know, some kind of jurisdiction in Texas if they did have to file for bankruptcy, you know, with the idea that they wanted to be in front of Jones. Why, and maybe you could weigh in a bit on this as well, Steve, but why do you think he was so good at handling these really tough cases? He was a litigator for many years. He did a lot of oil litigation uh, in the bankruptcy courts. And his personality has lent itself to uh, being willing to press forward with, not with minimal information, but without requiring a huge amount of of back and forth between, say, creditors and the companies that require months of briefing. He would often give you an uh, he, he was willing to take the risk that he might be wrong. He was very confident on the bench. He had a lot of experience with the kinds of cases that were coming in front of him. Uh, and he would often say, well, when I was in practice, we had these kinds of issues. He was also an expert in litigation, in the daily grind of 
two parties fighting with each other to collect information about each other and to decide what was presentable to the court, what was off limits. And he cut through those, those kinds of fights, which can bog down a lawsuit for years. He cut through that very quickly. And that's what made him sort of a favorite among a lot of uh, uh, companies that are in distress. Obviously, speed of execution is great when you're dealing with lawyers that cost thousands of dollars an hour. But um, did he always get it right? That's a good question. Well, it depends on who you know which which side of the aisle you're talking to. I would say um, there are a number of cases on appeal now that he ruled on. So, um, yeah, but I, I do will say that like um, one source I spoke to, who's a professor you know, did go on for a while when I spoke to him earlier this week about how well-respected Judge Jones was. And, you know, he was known for someone who worked incredibly hard. He was willing to, you know, schedule, you know, the first day hearing of a case mere hours after um, a case was filed. And so I think that big law firms also, you know, demanded a certain level of, you know, kind of intensity and readiness to to take on big cases and clear your schedule, you know, if a multi-billion dollar case comes onto your docket. So I think there was a lot of respect among, you know, all sides for that. I can't think of a specific case, a big case where he was overruled by either the district court or the, the, the court of appeals in Houston. He had a good enough reputation and the court itself, including Judge Isger and now Judge Lopez, they have strong reputations. And that means something um, to the judges above them, uh, the judges who have to review their decisions. So they were not overruled very often. And companies that had any reason to file, maybe they had a unit in Texas, they they would deliberately go to Texas just so they could deal with Judge Jones. Is that right? Uh, Jones or Isger, yes. Okay. Were, were creditors as happy as the companies to be down there in most cases? Some creditors. Some, uh, it depended on the, the case. I think some creditors may have viewed him as with a little suspicion uh, because he was willing to go fast and creditors often want to go slow in order to negotiate and bargain and see if they can get more money. So given the conflict of interest that has now come to light, Judge Jones and the lawyer he was personally involved with, isn't there a risk that some creditors may go back and even some companies go back and challenge some of the cases that he oversaw? Yeah, there is. You know, sources did say this week that there is that risk and there's not a lot of precedence for this. I mean, this is a a really specific case and just the sheer volume of cases that were before Judge Jones makes this a logistical nightmare. Um, But today we did see, you know, there was a brief filed in the appeal of CERTA and the lenders who are appealing the case are the ones that were left out of the deal did mention just, you know, basically as a line item that because Judge Jones resigned, there's some reason to believe that the case should be, you know, punted either to the district court in Texas or back to the uh, court in New York. It didn't mention the scandal or, you know, make any claim that because of the the scandal and the resignation, the whole thing should be overruled. But I think that it, it'll be used as a as a bargaining chip for sure, especially in highly contentious cases where you know lenders are grasping at anything to build out their argument. Steve, do you expect to see some of those old cases rear their ugly heads again? Oh, uh, lawyers will try. Uh, I think it's an easy argument to make. It's a hard one to win uh, unless you can specifically link a decision he made to the conflict that he that caused him to leave. That that might be possible, but uh, I suspect it will be on a very it, it'll be a limited number of cases that can actually make that leap. 
But the law firm that he, um, you know, he was involved with a lawyer at a, a prominent law firm, that law firm was involved in some big cases. That law firm mostly worked as what they call local counsel, which meant they did, uh, they did not take the lead on a lot of the most contentious issues. So you'd have a national law firm, say Kirkland and Ellis, Weil Gottschall, Aiken and Gump, one of these very big, you know, uh, world straddling law firms that actually did the most important and contentious work. And the argument will be made by the winners of John Jones's cases that Jackson uh, Walker did small amounts of work and therefore they don't have to, that you shouldn't overturn it. They weren't involved. But there were some cases that Jackson Walker did uh, uh, did handle themselves. Those cases could be, uh, you could make the argument, especially if something new comes out about the fees that were paid or about uh, any other conflicts of interest uh, related to his girlfriend. What are the other big takeaways from this case? Anything else come to light from your reporting? Uh, there's one irony. Judge Jones made some enemies. He made some very, he made people angry. There was one uh, well-known Wall Street distressed debt trader who had, who was convicted of, uh, uh, of essentially manipulating the bankruptcy process because he was playing, he was using his position in the Neiman Marcus case, uh, uh, Neiman Marcus, the, um, the retailer, the luxury retailer that went bankrupt, this Wall Street insider was using his position, his, his knowledge to, do, to threaten uh, other participants in the case. Jones went ballistic when he found out about this and personally pushed for prosecutors to look at this Wall Street trader and the person was eventually pl pled guilty. That's one example of a very angry, uh, a person very angry at Judge Jones. There's one other, and that is the, uh, the consulting company McKinsey was accused by some creditors and by um, by the U.S. trustee of not disclosing their own conflicts of interest. At one point, when handling these allegations, Judge Jones told them that um, that some careers might be ended because of this, and that he was perfectly willing to uh, to submit uh, a recommendation to prosecutors if he found that there were problems. He didn't make any final rulings that specifically sanctioned McKinsey, but he made enough of a problem for them that they spent a lot of money defending themselves. And eventually that case did go on in other courts um, uh, that, that continued to use some of Judge Jones's uh, findings and rulings. Interesting. Uh, Amelia, did you have other observations? I was just going to say that, you know, there have been pushes historically for venue reform and, you know, it's a very hard piece of legislation to draft um, from what I hear. And I think that we some people do expect there to be renewed calls for venue reform, like the fact that Houston alone as a venue had, I think, um, more than a third of national cases. And there are surely not that many um companies based in Houston or, you know, Texas with a prominent footprint there. And so I think that that will be something to to watch out for in the, in the coming months to see whether there's kind of greater scrutiny on the bankruptcy process and, um, you know, what sort of sorts of reform or, or calls for it come out of this. Great stuff. Steve Church and Amelia Pollard from Bloomberg News. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, James. Thanks, James. Read all of their great scoops on the Bloomberg Terminal and, of course, at Bloomberg.com. Bankruptcy is a huge story. We have a fantastic global team tracking it. So do check it out. Thanks so much.
As I mentioned earlier, we're joined by Spencer Cutter from Bloomberg Intelligence in Seattle. It's great to have you back on the show. How's it going? James, thanks for having me back again. It's going well. Great. So we're here to talk about M&A, that is consolidation in the energy sector, oil and gas companies buying other, mostly smaller producers. So oil prices are up, producers are enjoying a windfall. Have they run out of things to do with the cash? Are they now have to buy each other? Is that the, is that the end game here? Well, there, there's a couple of things going on. They, they, part of the, the cash that they've, they've been generating over the past year has been going out the door to shareholders in the form of stock buybacks and these variable dividends. And a lot of companies have basically committed to saying, we'll return something in the neighborhood of 50 to even 75% of free cash flow every quarter or every year to shareholders. Um, but there's also a lot of fragmentation within the industry, and there's a lot of small to medium-sized players. And um, there's not, you know, if you if you roll the tape back 10 years ago, it was kind of the Wild West with uh, the shale revolution and a lot of basins that were, were not producing all of a sudden were, we were able to produce. And that's kind of run its course to a large part. So now there's expectations that there should be some consolidation within the, the industry to uh, bring some of the scale and scope that you you would get in that case. So we've seen some M&A activity certainly over the last couple of years, um, but with the announcement of Exxon buying um, Pioneer, there's some expectation that that could really push everything into high gear. And that was a big deal, right? How much was it worth? Uh, 60 billion. Yeah, it's a very big deal. Um, and it is basically focused on Exxon expanding its footprint in the Permian Basin, which is the premier basin in the United States and North America. And is it really as, is it really as simple as just big companies like Exxon buying the smaller ones? Uh, I think you're gonna you could see you could see a couple different things. Um, you could certainly see big companies like Exxon like Exxon trying to expand their footprint in certain areas. Um, so you know, Chevron could be a buyer of another large company if they want to do the same thing. But I also think you could see a lot of consolidation within the mid-tier and two smaller to medium-sized companies kind of teaming up to be to make a larger, you know, certainly nothing on the to rival Exxon, but a, a much larger producer within a certain area. So I think you're going to see both of those. And you know, we're talking about you know credit-focused podcasts here. Fortunately, today I think what, whether it's a big company buying a smaller company or two mid-sized companies merging. I think it's going to be, largely be a credit positive event for bondholders of in, in, in most cases. Is it simply the case, um, as in other commodities, that bigger is better, just more efficient, bigger reach, all that stuff? Yeah, um, to a certain extent, yeah. Bigger is better. And, and there's a couple of things driving my view that I think this is a, a positive for creditors. You know, Usually when you start talking about M&A, bondholders get a little bit nervous because on the one hand, you could have the scenario of a big A, double A rated credit buying a smaller B or double B rated credit. And then the small bondholders of the smaller companies certainly make out um, with a bit of a windfall. But you could also have the opposite extreme, extreme which is an LBO. Um, but we haven't been seeing LBOs or highly levered deals in the oil and gas space for quite a while. And it's largely because of the downturns we saw in 2016 and 2020, where you had waves of bankruptcies. And ever since then, companies have been very focused on re rebuilding and reinforcing their balance sheets, paying down debt, um, 
And one of the ways they've done that is not just paying down debt, but also acquiring other companies in all stock deals. So if you look at the deals that have been done since 2020, all the large deals, almost all the large deals were 100% equity focused. And the handful of large deals that weren't, so like when Pioneer bought DoublePoint, there was a large cash portion of that that involved a private equity firm. And so private equity companies obviously would rather have cash than stock. They'll take some stock, but they need something to return to their, their LPs. Um, so I do think you're going to see most of these deals be structured as largely, if not all stock, mostly stock. And in the Exxon Pioneer case, you saw that. Um, so it's a continuation of that. And then the other, you know, let's talk about a merger of equals. And you mentioned is bigger, better, <clears throat> um, not oil focused, but natural gas focused. That this, this week, there were rumors that Chesapeake is looking to buy Southwestern. These are two natural gas companies. They're both... Um, you know, fairly large North America, but small when you compare them to a Chevron or an Exxon, uh, both double B rated credits. And my view is if those two combine in an all stock merger, that would give it much bigger footprint, more size and scope and business diversity. And that could then lead to an upgrade in their credit ratings because the, the agencies do uh, do look at that as a primary factor. You know, bigger does give you certain advantages. Is there any associated issuance with this? I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's all stock deals and, and um, the obviously on the LBO side, debt is hugely more expensive than it was. But is there going to be liability management? Is there going to be, I know, cleaning up the balance sheet? I mean, there, there have been also some, some issuance of, of energy companies over the last few, few weeks, actually. Um, so I was wondering, do we see more new money coming out? Um, you could see some liability management to the extent that um, the acquiring company may want to tender for some of the target company's bonds. Um, maybe they want to uh, change the covenants or somehow to match, you know, the, the indenture for their existing bonds. So the new, you know, the whole, every bond that is now underneath the, that corporate umbrella is relatively identical from a covenant standpoint. Um, or maybe they just sort of want to clean up the balance sheet. You mentioned some of the activity, new issue activity. A lot of that, you know, I've been going here talking about how a lot of these M&A deals are equity focused. But when you do look at some of the smaller ones, there has been some debt. And again, a lot of that is PE related. So Civitas Resources is a, a, um, was a relatively small oil and gas producer focused in the DJ basin. And they have gone from having only 400 million of bonds outstanding at the end of last year to uh, now they are the largest issuer in the high yield independent energy index because they have announced they have, they have announced and closed on two deals and just announced their third and each one of those did involve quite a bit of debt uh, but they were buying assets from private equity companies which like I mentioned earlier PE company will take some stock but they also need some cash so that they can give that back to their investors pretty quick. Are there any relative value plays here? I mean, is there, a, is there an opportunity for an investor to, I mean, I'm just going to be crudely breaking it down. I'm not an investor in any means, but find a target company that's junk rated that might be bought by an investment grade company, buy the bonds and hope for an upgrade and get, get some money there. Yeah. I mean, if you want to play that angle, the thing to do is look at who has, I think you're going to want the target company to have a fairly, first of all, a clean balance sheet. Nobody wants to acquire uh, a mess. And a fairly simple asset profile, um, so reserves in one, maybe two basins, and that their reserves are located fairly close to some of the larger 
producers uh, who have a bigger balance sheet and higher credit ratings. And the theory being the larger producer understands that region, already has operations in that region, has people on the ground, has uh, gathering and processing infrastructure, and it would be relatively easy for them to then acquire the adjacent acreage and then hook up all their systems to that newly acquired acreage. Um, there'd be certain synergies because now you have one company running instead of two. So that's that's kind of the playbook. Um, you know, Pioneers is focused in the Permian. And then you look at, um, um, sorry, Chesapeake Energy. Now they're trying to be the acquirer here, as, as is rumored. But if you look at what they've done, and you know, I've been writing about this for a little while, they, when they came out of bankruptcy, they had sort of diverse assets kind of all over the North all over the United States. And they have since um, sold off a bunch of the non-core assets, paid down some debt, and they're now focused on, on just two regions. And if you look at that, you're kind of like, okay, they don't have a whole lot of debt and they've streamlined their, their operations and their, and their, their reserve base. That makes it fairly easy for them to either be the acquirer or get acquired. So I'm not, not surprised to see them in the market. Um, rumored at least to be in the market to to do some sort of deal in basic terms are these deals this um m a that's going on this is more just companies in you know mostly fossil fuels companies just buying up more production they just want to produce more barrels or more liters of whatever it is they're producing yeah for a large part um there th that is most of what you're seeing um keep in mind you know it's a depleting asset base so every barrel of oil you pump out of the ground depletes you know, is a, is a barrel you can't pump out of the ground 10 years from now. So you need to keep replacing that asset base. And that can be either through, you know, going out and exploring for new reserves somewhere in the world. And there certainly is quite a bit of that going on, particularly offshore. Uh, or you can just acquire somebody else's already existing reserves uh, and, and hope that you can get a good deal. And then that extends your reserve life profile. You, you've also seen some deals um, involving, you know, ESG angles. Um, so another Exxon deal, um, Denbury Resources, that was largely, a, I think, an ESG angle because Denbury does this uh, enhanced oil um, recovery process where you basically take CO2 and inject it in the into the ground in an existing producing well to increase the pressure underground in that well to then force more oil and gas molecules out up to the surface. And so you're getting more gas out, more oil and gas out, and you're taking CO2 and injecting it in. And they also have CO2, a network of CO2 pipelines to help facilitate this. And of course, um, in this day and age, trying to find ways to inject CO2 back into the ground is something that uh, people look pretty favorably upon. But they're not buying wind farms or solar. They're, they're staying in, in fossil fuels, right? They're, they're largely staying in fossil fuels. Occidental Petroleum is branching out, not into wind farms or solar, but into this direct air capture um, arena. So kind of similar to the Exxon buying Denbury, but that's a sort of buying a proven company with proven operations. Occidental is, um, I'm going to get a little bit out of my area of expertise because direct air capture, from what I understand, is a slightly proven technology, but not proven on the scope and scale yet that Occidental is hoping to build, but they're basically planning to spend billions of dollars to build these facilities that just essentially, as the name implies, sucks carbon dioxide out of the air directly. And then they can take that, put in a pipeline and 
inject it somewhere else in the ground. So you are seeing a little bit of that. Um, ex, uh, Occidental is kind of the, the poster child for trying to lead the charge, uh, developing a new area, and we'll, we'll see how that goes. It's a credit show, so we always like to talk about risk. What are the risks here? I mean, surely these can't, companies can't just get bigger and bigger and you know, endlessly be acquiring resources. There's got to be some, some limit to it, right? Well, it depends if you're talking about the short-term risks or the long-term risks. It's sort of like, you know, as, as the economists say, in the long term, we're all dead. Um, and in the long term, we will eventually run out of oil and gas. And if you're an oil and gas producer and that's all you're doing, well, then you don't have a business anymore. Um, and there's lots of different theories out there as to what that runway looks like. Um, and I'm, I'm not going to to argue one point or the other, other than to say there is a lot of evidence coming to light that within the United States, the shale revolution, as it was, um, a lot of the best reserves have been drilled and produced, and you're going to have to start to expand out into um, second tier type reserves, which um, will cost just as much to drill, but you're going to get less oil or gas out of the ground from it. So you're your relative cost per barrel of oil produced goes up. Um, so that's that could be one reason for these companies to then continue to try to expand through M&As, to try to continue to buy these good reserves while they still exist. Um, you know, the other credit risk is just leverage uh, and commodity prices. So, um, you know, oil has been holding fairly steady north of $70 a barrel now for several years, ever since we bounced off the historic lows of 2020. Um, but if we hit enter a global recession, that, that could certainly change. Um, fortunately, as I've mentioned, most of these deals have been funded largely, if not exclusively with stock. So you haven't seen leverage climb very much, uh, if at all. Um, so the, the, the sector as a whole is, is about as healthy as it's ever been from a credit standpoint, but there are always these exogenous factors that can come into play when you're talking about a commodity based business. Ending on a high note, Spencer Cutter, Bloomberg Intelligence, thank you very much for joining us. Sure, thanks for having me. And we hope to have you back on the show very soon. Please do check out all of Spencer's great research on the Bloomberg Terminal. And thanks again to Steve Church and Amelia Pollard from Bloomberg News. Read all of their great scoops on the Terminal and at Bloomberg.com. And please do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We're on Apple, Google, and Spotify. Give us a review, tell your friends, or email me directly at jcrombie8 at bloomberg.net. That's J-C-R-O-M-B-I-E, as in my surname and the number eight at bloomberg.net. I'm James Crombie. It's been a pleasure having you. Join us again next week on The Credit Edge. you do if your data was working for you and not against you with bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems you get easy access to the details you want optimized for higher level analysis and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move our data is made for more so you can show the world what you're made of visit bloomberg.com enterprise data to learn more